0: Today on the show, true love. Are we really supposed to be monogamous for life? To find that one true love to spend the rest of our lives with. So at this moment, right now, on a scale of one to ten, how much do you guys love each other? them oh. at ten. Oh yeah?
1: Yeah. Uh, I'm, you I'm got to better least. say ten. <laughs> up to ten. <laughs> 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 I was gonna say nine-five, but I think it's a ten. <laughs>
0: This is Gail and Matt Reid. They've been a couple for almost 50 years. They met at college and still remember those first moments when they got together.
2: I remember that we were walking in the rain in the field behind where the chapels were. And he went up to the, it was like a, a podium outside.
1: And so I stood up at the lectern and I began to recite something from the beginning of a um, one of the Doors albums but the wonderful thing was she didn't know I was quoting an album so she thought I was being original which is really fabulous. Yeah. Tell it brother. When I was back in seminary school a fellow put forth the proposition that you can petition the Lord with prayer. Petition the Lord with prayer. You cannot Petition the Lord with with prayer. (laughs) So I must have been flirting. Mm
0: -hmm. Probably so. Gail and Matt believe that true love is possible. One person for life. Happily ever after. You know, what happens in the love songs. But not everyone believes in this idea of true love. There are one true love skeptics out there.
3: Monogamy is uh, ridiculous, and people aren't any good at it. They're not wired for it. We didn't evolve to be. It's unnatural.
0: I feel like monogamy is not natural. Look at every animal on the planet besides like penguins and seahorses. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> We're really setting ourselves up to fail uh, unless we find this one true love.
1: I know many people who have terrible, yep. terrible relationships, and for them, the, the notion of monogamy seems absurd.
0: A survey out this year of more than 3,000 Americans found that one in nine of them said they'd engaged in polyamory at some point in their lives, and even more had wanted to give it a go. Plus, in the US, about half of first marriages end in divorce before their 20th anniversary. So clearly, lots of people are reconsidering this idea of one person for life. Today on our show we're revisiting one of our favourite episodes to find out who's right here. The true love believers or the sceptics? And to answer this question, we're going to do it a little bit differently from our regular show. We're going to consult advice columnists and relationship bloggers. Just kidding. We're obviously not going to do that. We're going to look at the science, talk to the nerds, just like we always do. So to figure out the science of true love, let's start with that feeling you get when you're newly in love. Matt Reed remembers when that bolt of lightning hit him. This is the story he told us. Gail really needed this book that she'd left over at his place.
1: And it was like a winter night, and there was actually like snow on the ground. It might have even built, still been like snowing slightly. And I went over to your room and got the book and jogged down there with it. You did? It and gave you the book. And I remember consciously thinking, I'm going to make her fall in love with me. Really? And now you've forgotten. I
2: completely forgot. So, Gail, do you remember when you fell in love with Matt? I just remember knowing, like feeling in the spring that I I loved him.
0: And then in the summer, when they both got back to their homes for the holidays. The first summer that we were apart, I would
2: sit in my room and I would play Midnight Train to Georgia, the song by Gladys Knight and the Pips, over and over and over again and just, you know, cry, you know, from the sadness of being apart.
0: So what is that obsession, that craving, scientifically speaking? What is being in love doing to your brain? To answer this question, we met Dr Helen Fisher, an anthropologist at Rutgers University, at her apartment in Manhattan. The doorman buzzed us in.
3: Everyone comes here for Dr Fisher.
0: Helen has spent her career studying romantic love. She pioneered some of the earliest research into scanning the brains of people who are intensely in love. She wanted to see what was happening in their brain when they had that crazy feeling.
4: Before I ever put them into the scanner, I had to make positive that they were madly in love. So I would talk to them for hours, just hours. And of course, when you're madly in love, you can talk for hours. And I I must be so patient. I mean, teenagers are, like, in their early 20s talking about love. Oh, my God. It's fascinating. And the times that they talk about are... Charming. I mean, I remember one young young girl saying, well, we walked home from the 7-Eleven at 3 a.m. and we had a lemon and he kept tossing it back and forth with me and we were laughing, you know, and, and somebody else will say, well, you know, we were under the Brooklyn Bridge and we looked up and he said it looked like a cathedral. Okay, 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 okay.
0: So once Helen has established that they are disgustingly in love, she then asks each participants to bring
4: two photos to her, one of their lover the other of someone neutral. Somebody at the laundromat. Your distant cousin who you see once a year and just don't know it all. She pops them in the brain scanner. So I will flash on the computer and they will see a huge picture of their sweetheart three inches from them, so close you could kiss them.
0: Helen alternates between showing them the photo of their sweetheart and then the neutral face. And when the brain scanner is snapping these images of what's happening in their brain, she'll then compare them to see... What parts of the brain lit up when they
4: were looking at their honeys? They all showed in common activity in a tiny little factory near the base of the brain called the ventral tegmental area. And it lies right next to the brain regions that orchestrate hunger and thirst.
0: That tiny factory in the brain that Helen is talking about pumps out a particular chemical called dopamine, which plays a big role in the reward system. This drives us to seek out food and water. It's this chemical that also ramps up when we have sex and take drugs like cocaine. In fact, one group of researchers wrote that when they look at the brain on cocaine, it's, quote, remarkably similar, end quote, to someone in love. And to Helen, This all means that we kind of start seeing our beloved in a
4: totally new light. Everything about them becomes special. You know, the house they live in, the car they drive is different from every other car in the parking lot. The movies they see, the books they read, everything about them becomes special. Bottom line is that basic feeling of romantic love is generated in brain regions linked with wanting, with craving, with obsession, with focus and motivation. You're a a huge romantic. I guess I am, yeah, sure. Sure.
0: Because with the study, because you you, interviewed a lot of people to make sure who was madly in love.
4: Absolutely.
0: And I was wondering whether maybe that was selecting for a particular type of person that falls in love in a very particular way.
4: I, I, I wouldn't be surprised. There's always going to be human variation. I've never met two people who were alike in my whole life, and I'm an identical twin. That's as far as science has gotten. No question about it that I was selecting for a person who was powerfully in love. I needed to have the full-blown experience.
0: So it's possible that not everyone falls in love this hard. Plus, interpreting how brain scans relate to feelings is notoriously difficult. And Helen's first study only had 17 people in it. But her findings have since been replicated in other groups, including in a study of gay men and women, which showed that their dopamine factories also lit up when they were looking at pictures of their beloved. So, it's starting to look like there are chemicals in our brain that switch up when we're in love. But can these chemicals keep us together for life? That is, is our brain hardwired for monogamy? To find out, we need to look at more monogamous couples and see what's happening in their brain. But the monogamous couples that we're looking at now are furry. Oh, here they are! Inside a little plastic container is a cute couple nesting. The couples are chubby little rodents. They're called prairie voles. They're about the size of mice and basically look like cute rats.
3: These guys are actually quite vicious towards humans.
0: And the scientist who studies them is Larry Young. He's a professor of neuroscience at Emory University in Atlanta. And Larry tells us that these little puffballs are in it for the long haul. They're monogamous.
3: Yeah, these guys have been together for a while.
0: Larry says in the wild, once these prairie voles have sex, it's basically a done deal.
3: He mates with her and they find a nest together.
0: After just 24 hours of living together with a mate, Prairie voles will then hang out with their partners, in some cases, for life. And if one of the voles dies, they'll rarely pick another. One paper described the enduring nature of this fluff bond as extraordinary. And you could just see how in love they were by looking into their eyes. No, you couldn't. They're just rodents. They just have beady little eyes. But they were cute. Anyway, Larry let us out of the lab. Bye, little guys. And back to his office, where he told us about a similar, but very different, little animal.
3: There's another species of vole, which is what really got me excited, that looks exactly the same, but they prefer to be alone.
0: Yeah, there's another kind of vole, called a meadow vole. But this little animal likes to hook up with whoever, and it's all about free love for these guys.
3: And they don't bond at all. For them, they have they mate, they have sex, but nothing happens. No bond is formed.
0: Larry showed me a photo of the two voles side by side, and they look exactly the same to me. Cuddly, fat rodents. They're alike in so many ways, except one is monogamous and the other isn't. And as soon as Larry knew about these two species, he knew that he wanted to study them to see what was going on in their brains.
3: I thought, as a scientist, you know, this is a cool system to be able to look in the brains and the genes to try to figure out what's different biologically between those guys that form these bonds and the
0: ones that don't. To start his investigation, Barry cut up their brains and started analysing them. And he found one big difference between these two species of voles. And it all had to do with a receptor in their brain that latches onto a chemical called oxytocin. Oxytocin is sometimes called the cuddle chemical and it's associated with feelings of love. And Larry found that in the monogamous voles, there are a whole bunch of these oxytocin receptors in a particular area of their brain.
3: And you can see the prairie voles have lots of oxytocin receptors there.
0: But the free love voles, they didn't have those oxytocin receptors in that area.
3: You can imagine that when this animal mates and there's lots of oxytocin release, you're, you're completely having a different effect on the brain. So we said, wow, could this be what's responsible for the prairie vole for being monogamous?
0: He tested this idea by taking a group of these monogamous voles and then using a chemical to block that special oxytocin receptor. And that meant, ultimately, that oxytocin wouldn't work in that spot in their brain.
3: So we stuck the uh, tiny needle down into this area and infused just one microliter of this oxytocin receptor blocker. And then we just let them mate.
0: They gave another bunch of monogamous voles a placebo injection in that same spot in their brain. So that meant their oxytocin receptors were working just like normal.
3: We could see very clearly that the animals that mated, that got the placebo, they all wanted to be over with their partner, right? They, what,
0: is, what were they doing? What were,
3: they, kind um, of, they kind of cuddle. They would call it huddling, kind of uh, sit next to each other, uh, very motionless, and maybe groom each other. And... Um,
0: what is groom? What are they doing when they groom? So groomed,
3: it's just sort of uh, licking and, and you're like with their fingers sort of grooming through the, through the hair.
0: Larry's currently doing like a little, I guess it would be my impersonation of a rat, but I guess that's your impersonation of a vole. Yes. All right, so the voles who got the placebo, they were still being all cutesy and hanging out with their partner and fixing their hair and stuff.
3: But the animals that, where we blocked their receptors and we tested them the next day, they could
0: care less. That is. They didn't give their partner extra attention. No special huddling, no special grooming.
3: It didn't matter to them that they had mated with this other animal um, the night before, two nights before.
0: They treated them like a stranger. They
3: treated them like a stranger.
0: You unmonogamized voles. Exactly. And knowing this led me to ask Larry one obvious question. Do you think it's amazing that "vole" and love have the same letters in them?
3: Yeah, that's pretty cool. (laughs) (laughs)
0: All right, so there was another obvious question for Larry. What does this mean for you and me? Are we humans like the free love voles or the monogamous ones? Well, Larry told us that there are studies showing that oxytocin in humans can affect how we interact with our partners. And as for those oxytocin receptors, they are found in that special spot in the brains of humans as well. But still.
3: I want to make one thing very clear. vole bonding is not the same as human love. When we love someone, you know, we can use our elaborate cerebral cortex to think about how wonderful our partner is, what we can do in the future, all kinds of... It's much more complicated. But underneath that, there's something, there's this gut feeling that we want to be with that person. And I think that's what, that's what voles experience. They don't experience all the cognitive complexities that we do, but they just have this gut urge to be with their partner. And I think that oxytocin is, is, is sort of creating that gut urge.
0: All right, so here's where we're at. Oxytocin receptors have an important role to play in driving voles to stay together for life. And we humans also have that special pattern of receptors in our brain. But humans have a big, complicated brain. So it's not clear how far these receptors and these chemicals are motivating us to couple up and stay together for life. Because as anyone who's ever been in a relationship can tell you, our big human brains, they definitely complicate things. It's not all about gut urges for us. Sometimes other things just get in the way of true love. He's Gail and Madigan.
2: He started giving me all of a sudden about lowering the toilet seat, and I thought I was just gonna kill him over it. It's
1: the stupidest thing. Do you remember that? Not the seat, the lid. The lid. The lid. She was telling me to lower the seat, and I said, you know, what really makes sense is to lower the lid. Why is okay, there. Okay, you
2: see what kind of minutiae bull
1: this is? So my point was that there's, if there's a lid, the only reason to have the lid is to close it. I couldn't believe we were even discussing it. Well, I didn't bring it up. You said
2: no, lower no, the seat. no, no. You brought it up. <laughs> you told me it was very important to you that from now on I lower the lid, and you were mad at me. And I just thought, go f- yourself, Matt, with the f-ing lid. Don't I do enough? I clean the toilet. I do this. I do that. <laughs> what kind of simpleton obsesses over the f***ing toilet lid? Or, or really? Come on, Matt. It's stupid.
1: Okay. I need to answer what kind of simpleton I am?
2: Yes, you do.
1: No, it's a simpleton I don't, thing. I don't have to answer that.
2: You see what I've lived with all these years. You know, oh you've
1: asked God. me to fold t-shirts a certain way. I do. I you do. want them folded the way they came from and Haynes, without the cardboard, uh, without the plastic, neat. but they got to be Unlike folded. Unlike most
2: people and, who just throw their in their drawer uh, and it but, looks like
1: crap. But I'm just saying, if I can <laughs> fold a t-shirt in a way that makes you and your mother happy, you can close the toilet I seat. do. I do do it. I, I do know. it. And it's not that big a deal. No. And just because you fold t-shirts like a simpleton doesn't make I me love flowers, you less. I
2: put flowers in the bathroom.
1: I you like flowers like in the house. I
2: buy flowers it's, and I, I it's buy nice. flowers she, and mostly for him.
1: She keeps them around for me.
0: I do. So how does it get to a point in a relationship where it's, it can be so annoying when someone asks you to put the lid down? It's hard
2: to know, Wendy. It's really hard to know.
0: So it can be pretty tricky to stay with one person for life, especially when they leave the toilet seat up. Or was it the lid? Now, this was just a segment from our podcast, Science Versus. In our full episode, we also dive into this idea about monogamy. Like, is it natural? Were we really meant to mate with one person for life? If you want to know the answer to that question, you've got to head over to our true love episode. So just go to Spotify and search for Science Versus, that's Science VS, and click on our episode. True Love, where we'll also tell you the story of Matt's relationship with another woman called Gail.
2: You stupid piece of sh**.
0: Yeah, not his wife, Gail number two. I'm Wendy Zuckerman. Fact you next time.